Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. We are everyday people following Jesus every day. Amen. Thank you, worship team. How are your expectations doing so far? We're going to start our story this morning in Act three or four, depending on how you count the intermissions, which admittedly is a strange place to start a story. So you can imagine if you walk into a theater and uh, we'll, we'll walk in there together so you don't feel like you're walking in alone. And we, we walk into this theater and, and it's kind of already underway, but, but you realize you come in at the end of an intermission and in walks this character, this guy named Paul into the spotlight and onto the stage. And uh, think of Paul as the narrator to the story, right? The one who is helping the audience know what the author wants them to know. And like so many uh, stories and plays, the narrator is also a character in the story. In our story, Paul is also a traveling salesman, going from town to town, selling his wares and telling his story. And Paul lets us know, as he steps into this spotlight, that his next stop is a town named Thessalonica. And he and his friends, because he travels with a little bit of an entourage, they go into Thessalonica, and they start setting up shop and selling the tents that they've made and telling their story. This story is so disruptive, so disturbing, that a crowd of people actually rise up <laughs> to stop him, to kick him out of town. And, and I think we actually know this feeling that the, the people of Thessalonica feel rising up in them, this, this feeling that something so disturbing has happened, that the news that you're watching is so disturbing, you just want to get up and do something about it. Maybe it's the uh, tragic end of a child's life. Maybe it's yet another scandal of a pastor or a politician. Maybe it is some oppressive foreign government, something that makes you just want to stand up and do something. Well, these people stood up and they did something about this disturbance. So uh, here's how it went down. In Thessalonica, uh, we find this part of our story in Acts chapter 17 in the New Testament. When they had passed through Amph Amphipolis, easy for me to say, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ, is the Messiah. Now, since we're stepping into uh, the middle of our, our story here, a little bit of background on Paul, uh, because this isn't just a story. This really happened. Paul and his friends really did step into Thessalonica to tell this story. Paul really was a Jewish man, so him going into a Jewish place of worship would not have been at all strange. Uh, him uh, 
trying to talk to people and arguments going back and forth would have been very normal for them. It would be weird for us, so please don't attempt it this morning if people from one side started shouting at the other. But for them, it was very, it was very normal. Uh, and so Paul is trying to argue with them through the scriptures to say, look, this guy, Jesus, is the one you've been waiting for. The wait is over. He is the savior that our people have been hoping for for a very, very long time. This particular group of Jewish people was waiting for a savior to come break them free from the oppressive Roman government that they were being held down by. But groups of Jewish people had been waiting for some savior to come free them from an oppressive government for a very long time, sometimes even their own government. This was just the latest iteration. He says, okay, but in this time, we have been waiting for centuries, but in this time, the Savior, the Christ, has come. So if you thought Christ was Jesus' last name, you are not alone in that. Lots of people do, but it is not actually a name. It is a role fulfilled. It is him stepping in to be this Savior. It is a uh, story that Paul can't help himself from, from telling. This fulfillment is the disturbing story that Paul is going from town to town talking about. And it's disturbing in part because sometimes people would rather hold on to a hope for the future than actually accept the good that's happening right in front of them. And I think maybe some of us know that feeling we don't want to let go of the hope of what's coming to accept the good right in front of us. So Paul continues, or the story continues in verse 4. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Jason was housing them. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers, the other believers, before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. The accusation is fairly simple. These men, Paul, our, our narrator, remember, and, and his friends, are turning the world upside down. They are messing up the status quo and something needs to be done about it. But really what is so disturbing, especially if you have heard this story before about a guy raised from the dead and he's supposed to be the Christ, familiarity sometimes breeds contempt and sometimes just breeds apathy. What is so disturbing about this story. Some, some hope fulfilled. How does this mess with us? This is actually a disturbing story for three different things that Paul and his friends are talking about. There is a resurrected man. A man has come back from the dead. There is a king who is not Caesar. And there is a world turned upside down. 
There's a resurrected man, a king who is not the one sitting on the throne and and a world that's been turned upside down. The practical are disturbed by this idea that we're talking about some guy coming back from the dead. The political are disturbed because their power and their career and their future is tied to Caesar, not to whoever this upstart king is that Paul is talking about. And they are all disturbed by the way that this story upends expectations and order. Because the truth is, I believe we all like expectations. Now, some of us like them more than others. I really, really like to know what to expect. And I hold tightly to those things sometimes. But I really do believe all of us like expectation to some degree. And here's how I know. If you looked at your weather report today and it said that Thursday it was going to be 75 and sunny and you planned your family picnic and then you walked out there and it was the 40 degrees and rainy it's going to be because it's April in the Northwest, you would be disturbed as well. If you were in, uh, I don't know, Phoenix and, and you looked outside in July or looked at the weather report in July and it said that Saturday was going to be 70 degrees and a little bit cloudy, you would be rejoicing and cartwheeling even if you've never done a cartwheel in the last 50 years. You'd be so excited. And then if you walked outside and it was actually the 118 degrees it's going to be because it's Phoenix in July, you would be disturbed. We get mad at the weather people because they didn't meet our expectations. We all, to some degree, like to know what to expect. All three of these things are disturbing. A resurrected man, a king who is not Caesar, and expectations flipped on their head. One is uncomfortable, one is dangerous, and one is ridiculous. So let's start with the uncomfortable, upended expectations and go from there. Over the last few weeks, we have been looking at how Jesus' teachings upended expectations, which is in Act 2 or 3 of the story, depending on how you count the intermissions. We've been paying particular attention to this list of blessings or congratulatory statements that highlight the way that Jesus defied expectations, that his teachings defied expectations. And he's inviting us into the kingdom of God. No mistake, there is a kingdom he's talking about. He's inviting us into the kingdom of God, and this kingdom has a very different perspective from the kingdoms that we live in. He's taken everything we expect and flipped it upside down, or uh, as Dallas Willard said, he's taken what we understand and flipped it back right side up again. And it's a list of blessings and congratulatory statements that we wouldn't expect because this kingdom is not like other kingdoms. This is in Matthew chapter 5. We know this list as the Beatitudes in church history. It goes like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
In our world, the poor in spirit are trampled. The mourners are pitied. The people are expected to show mercy only if it has been shown to them. The teachings of Jesus upend our expectations. But teachings can only be so disturbing. Right? They're just words. Thousands of countercultural teachings and countercultural leaders through the decades and the centuries have disappeared. Their, their teachings gone into history books, swallowed up and run over by the prevailing culture and prevailing expectations. We, we're not actually here because of unexpected teachings. We're, we're here because of an unexpected life. So let's talk about expectations a little bit. One of the reasons we like expectations is because they help us plan. Whether it's for a picnic, whether it's for any sort of social environment we might walk into, even if it's just for retirement planning. We like expectations because they help us plan. Specifically, they help us plan to be more prepared and more comfortable and more in control of our situation. So we expect what someone will say so that we can win the argument and tear them down. We anticipate certain weather or certain dress codes or certain behavior so that we can be more comfortable. We expect others to behave in a certain way so that we can know how to work our way around them as needed. The problem is, we so often see what we expect to see. And we so often hear what we expect to hear, whether that's what was said or meant by the other person or not. Paul and his story is a good example. Paul preached this message all over the place, and everywhere he went, he got some sort of different reaction. We read about Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, he got trouble. In Berea, he, they, those people saw a, a reason to study and dig in. In Athens, they saw a philosopher. In Lystra, they thought he was a god. Now, that's not what he said at all. <laughs> Not even a little bit. But they tried to take what they saw and match it to their expectations and came to the wrong conclusion. We judge so much of a person's message and actions based on what we expected from them in the first place. The Jewish people, remember, were hoping for, barely daring to expect a savior. And as I said, they expected this Christ would free them from government interference, from oppression, and would actually give them the power. That's what they're hoping for. It's not just enough to be freed from somebody else's power, but you want the power that they had. So when Jesus and his growing following entered into the capital city of Jerusalem on a Sunday afternoon, they hailed him like a coming conqueror like a conquering hero, because they'd been waiting and they thought maybe this was the guy who was going to fulfill all of our hopes and expectations. 
That was Sunday afternoon. By Friday, some wolves in sheep's clothing had stirred up the people with whispers and lies. On Sunday, they'd been hoping that they could follow Jesus right up into the seats of power and share in whatever power he took. They, they wanted to follow him right into the mouth of the government. And by Friday, five days later, they're begging that same government to kill him. They're chanting for him to be crucified, to, to be publicly tortured and killed. See, he, he hadn't met their expectations. He was not who they thought he was going to be. He hadn't charged straight for the seats of power. In fact, he'd started taking on some of the little bit of power that the Jewish people had and said, hey, this is not how your God calls you to wield this power. He didn't meet their expectations. So they had him killed. Because powerful expectations lead to powerful dis disappointment that leads to a powerful reaction. From there, from there, they knew what to expect. Because dead people stay dead. We can count on that. And they knew, like any other movement that had come before, and hundreds, if not thousands, of movements that have come since, if you cut off the head of the snake, the movement is done. If you kill the leader, kill the instigator, kill the guide and the teacher, then you kill the movement. They knew what to expect. All of this craziness, all these expectations could just be put in the past. The problem became that Jesus was not done defying their expectations. The previous Sunday, he had rode into town on a donkey as a conquering hero. The next Sunday, he rose from the dead. The movement was not dead or done. It really was only just beginning. Because Jesus' teachings upended expectations. But his resurrection upended death itself. Jesus' words may have violated expectations. The comfort, the control, the planning that we hold so tightly to. But his resurrection went way beyond that. It upended death itself. His resurrection afforded his friends, afforded anyone who would follow him, including any of us who are following him with our lives now. It afforded everyday people the opportunity to have this death-defying life. Not like cliff-diving death-defying. But as in death cannot hold us down because it did not hold him down. He upended the power of death itself. So I love that you're chatting. No, keep going. I, I need some more amens in this room. That's great. You just keep going. 
Awesome. Okay. I want to I look at one more story of upended expectations. Uh, and, and it's really a story of expectations just running headlong into Jesus and getting flipped on its head. And it actually happened on that very resurrection day. We find the story in Luke chapter 24. Luke is the same uh, friend of Paul's who wrote down the story about Jason and Thessalonica that we read earlier. This is from a different book of his, his story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13. Now that same day, again, Jesus, they, they discovered that morning that Jesus rose from the dead. Okay? Now that same day, Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. It is likely that this is a couple that's headed home. Okay? They've been in Jerusalem. They've had a Jewish uh, holiday festival happening. Uh, they were there because of Jesus and what Jesus was doing, as we're going to find out in a second. And now they are, they are headed back home to Emmaus. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. Hold on to that word downcast. We will come back to it. Verse 18. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Now, a pause just for a second, because I think maybe I'm not the only one who does this. But occasionally, uh, I think we have a tendency to look at God and go, do you even know what's going on right now? Like, like, I know you want me to love that person, but do you know what they did? Like, I know you want me to forgive them, but... But do you really know what's going on? I know your word says we're supposed to do this, but, but do you know what kind of country we're living in right now? Like, we can't behave that way. Like, do you know what's going on? Are you the only one, God, who doesn't know what's happening in these days? Verse 19. What things, he asked. I love that. God will do that to you, too. God, are you the only one who doesn't know? Oh, sure. Tell me. What do you think's going on? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we'd hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they have seen a, vis a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but did not see Jesus. Okay. I read that with a little bit of energy because I don't know how to not. They said they were downcast. Like, imagine them mumbling this story. Like, yeah, we really thought Jesus was the one. But then he died. But then somebody went and discovered, and there were some angels, and they told him that he was alive, and that he raised from the dead. And it's kind of a depressing story. Like, they're, they're still depressed by this. Because the last half of the story they just told Jesus does not match their expectations. Dead people stay dead. So there is no, no part of this story is touching and gripping their emotions. 
They're still downcast. And so Jesus responds. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses, which is like act one or two, and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, I'm not going to take the time this morning uh, to walk through all of the Old Testament prophecies that point to Jesus, but there are a lot, and you have this tool called Google. And so please feel free to uh, go home and look up or just stop listening to me now, look them all up. That's fine too. And, and there are, you will find a, a lot of very interesting things, so be a little bit careful what you read, but there are so many so many Old Testament prophecies that point toward Jesus. And so Jesus took them through the truth. He just walked them through it step by step. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? In other words, our hearts were doing something. Our eyes did not see we didn't recognize him, not, not physically. Like what we expected, our senses could not grasp, but something in us knew that he was something different, knew that something was going on, that there was some move of God literally happening in our midst. And our hearts recognized him even when our eyes didn't. And there's so much that we can learn about Jesus in this story. This story is essentially the story that Paul, remember our narrator, was telling. That he was going from town to town talking about. A man was dead and is now alive. And he is actually the king of kings. He is inviting all of us to be part of something called the kingdom of God. He is the one that the prophets predicted. He is the savior, the Christ. This is the story. This is the story that turned the world upside down, that they found so disturbing because it messed with all of their expectations. So what do we learn about Jesus in this story of surprise uh, along the road? A couple of things that I noticed. One, that Jesus is not confined to our expectations. And this is uh, going to be a hard one, maybe especially uh, for those of you who would say, yes, I'm a Christian, I'm a, a Christ follower. Jesus is not confined to our expectations. I would argue that most of the ways the church has messed up for the last 2,000 years were tied to trying to get Jesus to be whatever we expected and wanted him to be, to try to use him to get what we want. Whatever your expectations, whatever your expectations, Jesus feels no compulsion to meet them. He is not confined to our expectations. Now, he promises to be near to the brokenhearted. He walked with these two downcast and brokenhearted people. 
But notice that he didn't seek to fix their situation. He sought to show them the truth. Maybe you feel like you are bringing your heartbreak to God and he's not fixing it. What truth is God showing you, teaching you as he walks alongside you? If you expect Jesus to be meek and gentle, he actually promises to be that. But that may not mean what you think it means. If you want Jesus to give you power or to fix your government, well, then you might find, just like the people in Jerusalem did as they shifted from chanting Hosanna to chanting crucify him, that he may not be there to give you what you want. And that he doesn't meet your expectations. In fact, even on the road to Emmaus, it wasn't his power It wasn't his great storytelling or his scripture knowledge that caused these two to recognize who he really was. They saw him when he broke the bread. Now, this is a reference, again, we're picking up the story partway through here. This is a reference to Jesus' last meal. We celebrate it on a regular basis. We call it communion that Jesus gathered his friends together and because he knew he was going to die the next day, he said, I got some things I need to tell you. And one of them was as part of dinner, he took bread and he broke it. And as he gave it to them, he said, this is my body broken for you. My body broken for you so that you might know the extent of my love. And every time you eat of it, every time you take a bite of bread, remember me. There is something in the brokenness that helps us identify Jesus. This is actually how he asks us to remember him is in the breaking. I think we see him most clearly in brokenness, which maybe messes with some of our expectations. But we see his love most clearly in the broken skin pierced by nails, in, in the broken man who has been beaten because he's taking on all of the pain of the world, all of the sin and the hurt being lashed out at him physically. I think we see him most clearly in our own brokenness. Many of us have turned to Jesus for hope in moments when we just feel broken and hopeless. When life is falling apart. When life is not going as we expected it to. That in those moments of brokenness, it's like our our own brokenness opens our eyes to the reality of Jesus' presence with us as we walk along. And lastly, in the story, we see Jesus prioritizing relationship. Walking, sitting, eating. This is not too different from any other relationship we may have. 
relationship with your parents, your kids, your spouse, your boss. We see them most clearly when we actually stop to engage in the relationship. We see Jesus most clearly when we actually stop to engage in the relationship. Not just occasionally, not just in kind of walking through life side by side, but actually together intentionally turn toward one another in relationship. It's true for your relationship with your coworkers, with your family. It's true for your relationship with Jesus. That we see him most clearly when we engage in sitting, eating, looking, watching, listening, engaged in relationship. And Jesus, it says, started to go on, but he prioritized the sitting and the eating. And I want you to know that he invites you to come and sit at the table with him, to break bread and really see him. We are invited to walk and eat and be with Jesus. You are invited to walk and eat and be with him, to be in relationship with him. And look, the people on the road to Emmaus didn't get it, right? They didn't understand what was happening as it was happening to them. And you may feel like you're just not smart enough or wise enough to be able to step into or be invited into that kind of relationship. And I want you to know that you are invited. The couple on the road was downcast and sad. You may feel like your heart is breaking. Jesus wants to walk through that with you. Whatever heartbreak you may be experiencing or going through, whatever has you downcast, he wants to walk through that with you. The truth is, the people on the road to Emmaus had given up. I mean, that's why they're going home. If they really thought something was still stirring with all these rumors of, of his body missing and, and maybe he's risen from the they stick around. That's one you skip work on Monday for, right? They'd given up. They were downcast. What they had expected to happen did not happen, so they were headed home. Maybe you feel like giving up. You're just done. I want you to know that you are invited to walk with him, to sit with him, to be broken with him because he knows what it is to be broken. And he has so much compassion for you and love for you as you reach the end of yourself. Entering into that relationship is not complicated. The walk may get tricky as you go along. It may get hard, but the first step is a simple one. He simply asks that you see him, 
that you see him for who he really is, that you see him in the brokenness, in the one whose body was broken and blood was shed so that you would know that you are loved, so that we would get to experience the love of God in a tangible, physical, visceral way. To see him as the one who has been raised from the dead, who is alive, who has conquered death, and invites you into that kind of new life. He simply asks that you see him for who he is. Broken in love, risen, conquering king over death and sin. If you want to enter into that relationship, he's listening. You can whisper something in your head, And he knows. And you're invited to do that. I I gave my life to Jesus by myself in my bedroom when I was 14 years old. You can go that route. To simply say, Jesus, I, I need you in some way. I see you for who you are. I want more of this. Mine was, Jesus, I have reached the end of myself. Mine was pretty theologically messed up, actually. I was like, I don't actually want my life anymore, so you can have it. Turns out that was enough, too. We don't have to have all the right words. We're invited to engage in relationship. And you can just tell him that, that that's what you're looking for. The next step, then, is to tell somebody else to find another Jesus follower, maybe the one you came with this morning, or if you're online, to find some Jesus follower you trust to say, hey, I, I think I'm starting this relationship with Jesus. Like, he's walking with me, and I have no idea what that means or what my next step is. Uh, we would love to walk you through that. If you'd like somebody to pray with you, again, the Jesus follower you came with can absolutely do that. I'll be standing up here as we sing our last song or a little while after we're done would love to do that. It's not actually that complicated. But it is a hard invitation to accept because it absolutely defies our expectation that the God of the universe would love us to this kind of extent and that he would be made most visible in brokenness on a cross and in rising from the dead. And that he would invite us, all of us, to step into that kind of new life. We worship a risen Savior, and we follow him with our lives. So let me pray for us as we do that, and the worship team leads us in a last song. Father God, I am grateful for your love for us, for the ways you put it on display, and they don't, God, you know, that they don't match my expectations. that I I thought things were going to go a certain way when I said yes to you, and and you've been defying my expectations ever since, and and I imagine that that's true for most of us. And yet you continue to be faithful when I expect you to abandon me, and you continue to express your love when I expect I'm unlovable, and you continue to walk with me even when I can't see you. And I don't understand where I'm going. Father, would you walk through us, through the heartbreak with us? 
Would you walk through whatever storms we're going through with us? Would you celebrate with us? God, there are some things in this world that bring us down. Would you lift us up? Would you remind us? Would you show us the truth that there is a man who, who lived, who died, who rose from the dead? That that man was fully human so that he could die, fully God, so that he could die for us. God, would you show us the truth of who you are? That we would see you. That we would get to know you. Uh, that we would be able to follow you wherever it is that you are leading us. God, whatever uh, journey we are on, Jesus, I'm so grateful that you walk with us, even when we can't see you or don't understand. Wherever you're leading us, that's where we want to go. Father, would you lead us as a church? Uh, would you lead us as people to, to give our lives, our steps, our hearts to you, knowing that you are good and that you invite us in. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for checking out our podcast. You can learn more or connect with us online at easthills.org.